Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR and this week we are going to look at Turkey's economic and financial crisis, uh, what it means for Europe and what the different policy options are in terms of a, a eventual bailout if, uh, if that is what is required. And to help us make sense of this, I have an all-star cast. Joining us from Turkey, we have Asla Aydın Tashbash, who's our senior policy fellow, um, who returns to the podcast uh, once again. Um, also uh, down the line, uh, we have Oksana Antonenko, who is uh, Director for Global Political Risk Analysis at Control Risks and also a, a visiting fellow at the LSE. Um, but before that, worked for a number of years at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, where she was looking at a lot of the, the economic um, uh, situ- situation in, in, in Turkey um, with a different hat on. And from Berlin, we have uh, Almut Müller, who is uh, the head of our office and a senior policy fellow at ECFR, who is also looking at some of the European politics around this, not least uh, the domestic politics in Germany around the idea of, uh, of a bailout of Turkey. Why don't we start with you, Asla? Why don't you tell us about what happened, what the roots of the, the current situation are, and how dire it is at the moment? Well, the thing that really pushed Turkish economy over the edge was the recent crisis between Ankara and Washington around the imprisonment of an American pastor, uh, Andrew Brunson, who's now pretty much a household name among the evangelical community in the United States and certainly in Turkey. He's been, he was caught up in the dragnet after the coup, as many other foreign nationals were, and many Turks, of course. And uh, he's an American missionary who's been living in Turkey for about 20 years, running a small church in Izmir, went to get his residency ID renewed, was arrested. Uh, months and months later, the, uh, almost a year later, an indictment was produced, uh, suggesting he's a spy trying to convert Kurds into Christianity and therefore trying to divide up Turkey. The sort of usual thing that Deniz Yücel, the German journalist, and several other, and Osman Kavala, civil society leader, the, 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 the sort of usual charges that you see in these situations in Turkey. The difference was, of course, uh, he became increasingly more important for the Trump administration. There had been quiet negotiations going on for quite a while. And the promise was that Brunson would ultimately be released after the Turkish general Turkish elections, presidential elections last June. Lo and behold, he was not released or put on house arrest. And I think it you know, that it became quite an increasingly tense issue between Washington and Ankara, leading to U.S. sanctions ultimately to Turkish minister, minister of interior and minister of justice have been uh, sanctioned by U.S. Treasury under Magnitsky Act. This is almost unprecedented for a NATO ally labeling them as running organizations responsible for serious human rights violations in Turkey. And of course, uh, you know, then steel and aluminum tariffs. And there's expectation of, uh, of uh, a new set of uh, sanctions. Uh, we don't know if that will happen or not. Depends on, at this point, depends on whether uh, Pastor Brunson is released or not. I think there was at some point a negotiation process behind the scenes, and I followed it pretty closely, both talking to U.S. officials and Turkish officials involved. It was sort of a two two-stage uh, process in which he would be released in return for the, you know, sort of the release of the, in return for the extradition of a Turkish banker in jail in New York and then other U.S. citizens in jail would have been released in return for a low fee. But now I think all bets are off, negotiations are off. Uh, and uh, basically the U.S. position seems to be first release Bronson and then we talk, which makes it very difficult 
uh, for President Erdogan, who has also, you know, who also speaks in high decibel, as you all know. And I think uh, there is, uh, you know, with the depreciation of the Turkish lira, the sort of impending economic crisis, everyone talking about the economy, the rhetoric here in Turkey has become the sort of uh, on the part of the government. There's an overall attack on Turkey. They tried it with the coup; it didn't work. They tried it in, you know, with the Gulenists; it didn't work. And now they're trying economic terrorism. Let's line up. Let's let's get our forces together. We're defending the country. The sort of once again uh, typical anti-Western rhetoric, and it does work uh, to a certain extent, at least for the AKP-based Turkeys, as you know, very polarized. So what works for one side doesn't necessarily work for the other side. But it has helped galvanize the sort of more conservative and, and nationalist base. But it does not solve the issue. Is still there. Does not solve. Uh, you know, there's no remedy for Turkey's economic downturn, which would have happened in any case, with or without the uh, Brunson crisis. But it so happens that this pushed the economy over the edge. What didn't help is uh, the market reaction to President Erdogan appointing his son-in-law as the sort of super economies are, the Minister of Finance and Treasury. And on a final point, Turkish-American relationship is such a mess now that everything is intertwined with Pastor Andrew Bronson in the middle of it. And by that, I mean Turkish sale of Turkish purchase of F-35 fighter jets when Turkey is in the production line is now on hold by put on hold by U.S. Congress because of Brunson. The again, uh, you know, the threat of U.S. sanctions on Turkey's intention to purchase S 400s from Russia. Again, the legislation includes Pastor Bronson. You know, there is sort of, as you know, U.S. support for Syrian Kurds and various uh, agreements for cooperation in Syria, again, sort of uh, slightly on hold. And uh, in this whole mess, uh, it would have been a question of who backs down first, had there been an intention to back down. I don't see that yet in Turkey. So we are in possibly in a prolonged period of Turkish-US tensions. So um, you've given us a great rundown of a lot of the, the proximate political causes of, and the, the escalation with the US. Oksana, do you want to uh, give us more of an economic perspective on, on, on the roots of this crisis? Because um, as Asla said, um, the thing which ignited it might have been this uh conflict with the us but there are a lot of uh structural problems with the turkish economy which were which have been there for a long time yes uh, uh indeed uh, mark i mean we all have to remember that uh, president erdogan decided to move the elections forward uh, to an earliest uh, time uh, because the economic problems have been uh, multiplying in Turkey uh, already starting from the start of this year uh, and uh, uh, the devaluation of the lira has started uh, uh, before uh, the, the, the crisis, the current crisis with the United States. Uh, but I would even argue that the fundamental structural problems in the Turkish economy is really uh, date back to several years of uh, the actual lack of any structural reforms. You know, President Erdogan, of course, came to power uh, initially uh, after a very deep economic crisis in uh, in, in Turkey uh, in, in 1999, in, in 2000, 2001. And in the first uh, uh, period of uh, Erdogan's uh, presidency, he did implement quite a substantial uh, structural reforms, uh, very much in cooperation with the IMF program. In fact, a lot of uh, uh, initial government program objectives have been taken almost verbatim from the IMF program and, of course, very much supported by the convergence with the European Union uh, and, 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 and the formal accession negotiations which were taking place at that time. Uh, but uh, in, the, in the last, in the recent history, uh, particularly after the 2008-2009 global financial crisis, Turkey um, had not implemented any um, uh, serious uh, uh, structural reforms and in fact had been a hostage 
uh, also favorable uh, external financial environment, which uh, brought in a lot of complacency uh, about the structural challenges that Turkey is facing. Uh, for example, after 2008-2009 crisis, when most of the European countries continued with their austerity programs and really struggled to put the debt under control, uh, most importantly, of course, the government debt, but also private sector and corporate debt, Turkey actually had a relatively low levels of the uh, state debt and the corporate and the private sector debt. So they were able to borrow a lot of money uh, at a relatively low uh, uh, rate because of the uh, quantitative easing and, 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 and a lot of uh, liquidity in the market after the financial crisis. So literally within the space of a few years, the Turkish foreign debt, particularly the corporate debt, has gone from uh, under 15% of the GDP to uh, uh, almost 40% of the GDP last year. Um, and a lot of this debt is in foreign currency because, of course, it was borrowed from foreign banks or foreign institutions. And therefore, when we have witnessed you know, growing deterioration in the market confidence in Turkey as a result of pressure over the central bank, uh, the growing concerns about the health of the banking sector, and, and more broadly, uh, kind of political challenges that Turkey had been facing over the last several years, from the failed coup to new presidential system and, and, and multiple elections. Um, and uh, the uh, depreciation of the lira has really been penalizing hugely the Turkish corporate sector, which now has on its books a lot of debts that are denominated in dollars and euros. And as a result of that, is not really able to cope with servicing this debt burden. And of course, the state under uh, President Erdogan has also been uh, expanding dramatically their uh, fiscal uh, spending, uh, financing this large infrastructure projects. We're talking about the new airport, new road construction, etc., which also increased hugely uh, the, the state debt and, 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 and increased the current account deficit, which now is really very large, particularly at the time when oil prices are now again rising. So all of those structural problems have been really building up for a time. So the uh, political crisis, geopolitical crisis of the United States has been uh, uh, sort of a straw which broke the camel's back in many ways. It is a, a Turkish perfect storm, which uh, you know it is now sailing into with a lot of, I think, uncertainties ahead and a lot of concerns in Europe. And how much of it is, it, it, of it is uh, a Turkish perfect storm versus a European one? I mean, how much systemic risk is there for European uh, banks, for the European financial sector? Um, could it spread? I mean, it's obviously having some negative impacts on other uh, emerging markets like uh, Argentina at the moment. But uh, f from a European perspective, how vulnerable are we? Well, I mean, first of all, of course, it is a Turkish crisis, and it is a very substantial crisis because Turkish uh, corporates have to pay back over $18 billion uh, in the short-term uh, debt repayment obligations just over the next 12 months, and potentially that number can even increase if the Turkish economy and crisis start to deteriorate. And its long-term uh, obligations now uh, exceed uh, $200 billion, $230 billion almost. So it is really, um, uh, you know, a substantial crisis for Turkey. But for Europe, it is also uh, a very important crisis because, of course, the Turkish economy and the European economy has been intertwined uh, for, for quite a long time. Uh, Turkey, of course, and the European Union um, uh, are united in this uh, uh, customs union arrangement uh, that has been um, uh, in place uh, since 1995 and has really expanded the mutual economic interdependency um, uh, in a major way. Um, uh, of course, the most serious vulnerability that Europe is facing now is that the, uh, a lot of the uh, loans that have been provided to the Turkish private sector have come from uh, European uh, banks. Um, and uh, particularly uh, the Spanish uh, banks and, and Italian banks, uh, you know, own quite, um, uh, are owed quite substantial uh, amount of uh, money by the Turkish borrowers. For example, Spanish banks are estimated to be owed uh, in excess of 80 uh, billion uh, dollars, and the French uh, uh, banks are uh, almost 40 billion. 
um, Italian banks, I think around 15, 17 billion. So it's a very substantial amount of money. At the same time, of course, a number of uh, systemic uh, EU banks own shares in very large Turkish banks. Uh, uh, for example, uh, you know, BNP Paribas um, and, 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 and Italy's Unicredit or Spanish BBVA, they all own very large stakes in the Turkish banks that might actually be very severely undermined by the further escalation of this financial crisis in Turkey. Uh, the trade also is being affected quite uh, a lot because uh, the Turkish consumers now with a lira depreciation are no longer able to consume as much of the European uh, imports as they used to consume. Of course, um, uh, EU is a major uh, trading partner of Turkey um, and uh, uh, any uh, uh, decline in imports of the Turkish uh, uh, goods and services, of course, and is going to have an impact uh, on a number of major EU member states. Um, and uh, another uh, important factor, of course, is uh, energy. Uh, Turkey is now emerging increasingly as a very important energy hub for uh, European Union. It's already providing a very important alternative to uh, uh, dependency on Russian gas imports into Euro European Union. So a lot of projects that are now underway, be it the Southern Gas Corridor or the TANAP project, is a, a very much important strategic projects for European energy security. So if any of those projects are being put on hold, delayed or, or, or undermined by the prolonged economic crisis in Turkey, I think European dependency on Russia will continue to uh, escalate, and, and that is not something which uh, uh, Europeans want to, are prepared to accept in the short term. And of course, the final uh, issue is the migration. Uh, so far, you know, Turkey has been adhering to the uh, EU-Turkey migration deal and has been um, uh, halting the uh, inflow of the migrants uh, into the European Union. But we have seen already recently this uh, the flow of migrants picking up again. Uh, and I think any deterioration in the economic and political stability in Turkey would mean that a lot of Syrians who are now already uh, being targeted as a result of some of the internal economic hardship and, 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 and resistance uh, in the Turkish society to more assistance going to the migrants um, potentially could trigger another major migration crisis, which, as we know, has had a huge impact on uh, European politics for, for some time. So, um, Alma, you're sitting in Berlin at the moment. Um, a couple of weeks ago, um, the leader of the Social Democratic Party, Andrea Nahles, um, created a big debate by saying that, that um, Germany couldn't let Turkey um, uh, fall on its nose and that uh, Germany might need to give it some financial aid. Um, how is that debate uh, developing? Is there a, Do you think that um, Europeans both feel like they are directly affected by the, the crisis in Turkey um, and also uh, to what extent is there a serious debate about Europeans becoming part of the, the solution? So my reading of the discussion here in Berlin is that um, it has gone more quiet again, but um, policymakers here are following very closely for the obvious reasons that uh, both Asli and Oksana pointed out, uh, developments in Turkey. No doubt this would be very bad news for Europe and for Germany. Um, Germany is the most important uh, um, recipient country of Turkish exports. Ties are strong in economic terms, but also, of course, um, no doubt the political, geopolitical and security implications of a Turkey plunging into difficulty and or chaos would be um, no good news at all uh, for for the European Union and for Germany. So against that background, and you, you talked about the um, leader of the Social Democratic Party here, Andrea Nahles, who is also um, um, the party is is uh, forming the Grand Coalition government with Chancellor Angela Merkel. Well, she was th th what she said was, well, we need to be prepared to help Turkey. And um, I'm not sure it was intended to be turned into what it then became, and that is a debate about a Turkish bailout. To me, it sounded more like an attempt by the Social Democrats to get ahead of the game. Um, and that also has a domestic dimension here um, within the coalition government of Chancellor Angela Merkel. 
Um, the German Social Democrats really want to seize an opportunity to show now coming out of the summer break um, that they are ahead of a lot of the policy challenges um, that the country is facing. There have been pushes on um, pension reform and there has been a more a bolder um, getting um, out with suggestions by the foreign minister on a more balanced transatlantic relationship. And I think it is in this context that um, the Social Democrats are also, um, because they are in a competition somewhat with the Christian Democrats here and Chancellor Merkel's party, to show that they are really the European party. There is space uh, amongst Germans to really, um, you know, that, that uh, you can gain support uh, as a party if you show that you care. Um, I'm not sure Germans care so much, though, about Turkey. Polls are telling us that um, a, um, a bailout that uh, Andrea Nahles, I don't think, suggested, but a bailout would not be popular at all. Um, having said that, uh, of course, the... Um, the repercussions would be would be strong, and um, I assume that there is now um, a great deal of looking into um, what actually Germany and other Europeans could do in case um, the situation in Turkey goes uh, worse. Um, what is difficult here in Berlin and in Germany at large, always of course, is that there is various layers with regards to uh, engaging with Turkey. And one, of course, is the European dimension, um, the discussion about Turkey's EU membership. Um, there is the need, especially for Germany, to um, uh, have the um, arrangement of the refugees that Oksana talked about in place, um, because this has been a debate that has challenged the establishment here quite a bit um, and brought even Chancellor Merkel, who has been the most stable for so many years, to the verge of uh, the end of her chancellorship. Um, then there is also the domestic discussion here and the controversies over Germans that are, as Arsene talked about earlier, arrested in Turkey. Um, Denis Yuzel uh, was one example. Um, Mesale Tolu is another one. Um, Turks living in Germany um, that um, parts uh, of this community supporting President Erdogan. This has created a lot of tension within the German-Turkish population here, and the government has no interest, um, of course, in the polarization of the uh, of Turkish society to really play out also in Germany, which is to some extent already happening. So there is various layers to the Turkey question that are playing out right now. Um, I believe from a sort of political and geopolitical perspective, um, this has a wider dimension in that um, Foreign Minister Maas last week talked about um, and here comes in the transatlantic dimension, talked about um, being more prepared as Europeans if the United States was going to take measures that would cross red lines for Europe and uh, damage European interests. Well, I believe um, the question over the future of Turkey is um, one area where, um, you know, that, that, that could be potential for a real tension here with, with, with Washington, and this is the wider context to this debate. Um, currently, the bailout uh, issue is not making the headlines. It would be very difficult uh, in Germany to come up um, with any ideas against you know, public opinion, but I think there is, the, um, the, of course, the wish and the attempt of the federal government here and the Social Democrats pointed that out from their side, you know, that this is nothing that we can ignore. Um, we have to face it head on and we have to be prepared for such a moment. And um, within Europe, Germany will be among the countries that it's uh, expected to be leading um, alongside with with France um, with answers. And um, so I think this is this is not going to go away. This, this issue is going to come back to us. Can we maybe try and unpick some of the, the um, questions of what what a kind of bailout, bailout might be? Because, you know, I think what you know the discussion so far has shown that there clearly is a problem. We talked about some of the economic and the the political roots of it. Erdogan at the moment is saying that he doesn't want to bail out. He doesn't want to go to the IMF, but he has been going around trying to see if he can get help from the Russians, from the Qataris, and he's going to be going to Berlin uh, later in um, uh, in September. And people. Um, uh, are wondering um, what he's going to ask uh, Chancellor Merkel for when, when he meets her. Um, <clears throat> there are various instruments that could be used if, if Turkey does need external aid. The IMF uh, is one possibility, but the Americans are saying they, 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 they would block a, 
uh, an IMF uh, bailout. There's also talk about different EU instruments. Um, Oksana, do you want to talk through the the um, what the the different options might be, and then it might be good to hear from Asla about how they're seen in Turkey. Um, yes, I mean, I think first of all, on the timeline, um, at the moment, as things stand at the moment, uh, in fact, Turkish government probably does have potentially, you know, eight nine months, uh, uh, if if there is no further deterioration in the value of the of the lira, uh, to try to put something together, because as I said, it it is facing quite a lot of a, it's, it's corporate sector, a lot of debt repayment obligations, but it's state debt it still remains relatively under control. But if the lira uh, plunges further, and I think we, we have seen, of course, with this uh, uh, low trust in Turkish institutions, uh, Asli mentioned that also uh, the current economic management team um, uh, in the government, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, if lira goes down uh, below eight or, or even nine, I think the urgency of, uh, of the bailout or some sort of assistance program really will become, uh, you know, very uh, very very important. So um, we, even though it's, it is not on the agenda at the moment, I think it will be uh, potentially on the agenda. And if lira de- uh, depreciates, uh, you know, below eight, between eight and nine, um, I think we are potentially looking at the size of the bailout, which will be needed in the range of, you know, above 20 billion. Between some some analysts even quote 30 billion. So we are really talking about a very very large bailout package. And I think the challenge. Uh, with that sort of bailout package is not only its size, but it's also the fact that it is not a, a classic IMF uh, uh, sort of uh, macro stability instrument uh, which uh, helps to address the high levels of state debt. As I mentioned, the, the Turkish state debt is not yet uh, at a critical level, uh, anywhere near it, in fact. But it needs to be structured in a way uh, that it actually helps to bail out the private sector and the banks in particular. And that, I think, is a little bit trickier for the IMF uh, to structure that kind of package. And clearly, um, uh, this uh, will come with a very, very strong conditionality attached to it, something which um, I would be interested to hear from Asli. I think from uh, the Turkish perspective for the time being, uh, President Erdogan in particular, is not really acceptable. Um, Can the United States block the IMF, I think they can't if there is really a strong consensus within the IMF that they need to provide that assistance. Um, U.S. only, I think, holds about 16.7% uh, of the shares of the vote, so they can't really block the decision. But what they can do, they could delay uh, the discussions around the conditionality uh, of this uh, loan or this the, the, this program, and they can also shape to a large extent uh, what kind of conditionality are uh, attached to this uh, program and could it make it even less attractive potentially for the Turkish side. But in any case, I think IMF is certainly a much longer road ahead. This is not something on the agenda at the moment. I think the second possible scenario that the Turkish government can take is to try to kind of put together uh, its own sort of ad hoc stabilization program which will rely uh, primarily, I think, on the assistance package from the Europeans. And here I say Europeans because it is not clear to me whether the EU as the EU will be able to come up with a consensus uh, around offering Turkey something which has not really been offered to anybody else outside of the Eurozone area, because all the traditional instruments, uh, you know, such as the European Stability Mechanism now, you know, they are uh, uh, primarily focused as, you know, large bailout funds for Providing again this, you know, financial stability, they are for the EU members and for the particularly the eurozone members, and of course Turkey is neither. Um, uh, and the uh, macro uh, financial st- assistance uh, instrument, which the EU does have, and which usually applies to the neighbourhood uh, countries. Again, Turkey is not formally a member of the European Neighbourhood Policy. It is in that sort of, you know, accession uh, category, um, uh, and the uh, macro financial uh, assistance has not been really used for the accession countries before. But but I think even if it is to be considered, and it is something which was considered, for example, in the case of Ukraine, it is usually uh, uh, being uh, provided in a very close coordination with the IMF and in a way kind of a support, in support of the 
core IMF program and IMF conditionality. So EU is not really able to clearly drive policy decisions and conditionality among countries that are not member states. So I think within the EU, there's very limited uh, instruments that currently exist that can actually be especially directed for the Turkish situation now. What can be done, I think that individual EU member states can really come up with their own kind of tailor-made financial package, uh, which could uh, be directed uh, uh, to support the uh, corporate sector and the banking sector in Turkey. It can be channeled either directly to the Turkish government or can be sent via development institutions like, for example, the European Investment Bank. Um, but uh, uh, again, that would be something which uh, will be politically perhaps difficult for some of the member states. And we have seen recently some negotiations, not only with Germany, but also with France, um, uh, uh, around the scale of that bailout. Because, of course, uh, as I mentioned, we are really talking about a very large bailout. And uh, that, uh, if, you know, the specially tailor-made financial civilization package can also be supplemented uh, with the various uh, bilateral agreements with non-EU states like Qatar, for example, which had already pledged 15 billion uh, in investment in Turkey, although it is not yet clear how it is going to be channeled and, and where, in which time frame it's going to materialize. For the time being, nobody has really seen that financial assistance and, and where it is going. But in any case, for the Turkish government, it will be incredibly difficult to put together this very sizable package taken from very different you know, sources uh, in order to avoid going through a very tough conditionality associated with more of an institutional assistance program. Asla, I'd love to, to hear how the government is thinking about it and what the Turkish debate is. But can I just ask you one very technical question, Oksana, before we do that, which is about um, whether the US is actually able to block an IMF. I heard what you said about the IMF being a long way away, but... Um, from an EU perspective, it's not only preferable to work through the IMF, but also there is actually secondary legislation to say that instruments like the multinational uh, financial, um, uh, uh, the MFA, multi, what does that stand for? Multinational financial assistance, macro financial assistance. Uh, there's secondary legislation which says you can't use that without the IMF. So the EU would have to change its rules if it w did want to use it. But would the US be able to block uh, an IMF package if if uh, Europeans wanted it to happen? No, as I mentioned, you know, the, the, the U.S. cannot really block IMF program if there is a very strong consensus among other IMF uh, shareholders that they want to proceed with the with the program. I mean, as I said, the United States can only con control, you know, sort of under 20% of the voting yeah. share, but they can in fact, influence quite substantially the conditionality around which yeah. the IMF program yeah. is being offered. And also, of course, it can try to build the coalition, which they have done in previous cases yeah. when they tried to block uh, assistance. But uh, it cannot really block it outright, just on its own. OK. So, um, Asa, do you want to tell us um, how uh, people are talking about this in Turkey? Let me start talking about the government's position, very opposed to the idea of the IMF, and very unwilling at this point to return to a sort of fiscal discipline, low growth, a rules-based system, which would bring about a certain amount of institutional autonomy to central bank other, and other economic actors and institutions. So they're very far from the IMF, and openly so, not just sort of in terms of their position, but also in terms of what they're doing. We have not yet seen uh, even sort of Erdogan's position on interest rates change that much, uh, putting a fair amount of pressure on banks also not to raise interest rates and the central bank, of course. So um, the idea of IMF is, you know, in particularly in the AKP newspapers and by columnists that are close to the government is described as an imperial imperial sort of plot to try to enslave Turkey. They've tried they've done it before, but but AKP is the antithesis of that. AKP is the sovereign, powerful, independent. They don't want those that are trying to get us to go to the IMF are, you know, uh, do not want the rise of a new Turkey. So that is. Uh, a very firm position. It may change a year from now, particularly if you know we see 
Turkish lira depreciate further, and then that, that, that would be a very serious problem from the point of view of Turkish companies, small companies and medium-sized companies and, and the banks, of course. But right now, uh, the idea of IMF is, is seen as nothing but a, a plot against Turkey. Uh, the, I think I'm going to... Uh, I like the way uh, Oksana has laid out the various instruments that are available to Europe, but let me remind everyone that there isn't really much of an instance in, of Europe bailing out a country uh, that has an, out, an outstanding problem with the United States. In other words, Europe saving a country despite United States. Uh, these instruments are available, and it's also theoretically true that uh, Americans cannot, bail out, cannot block an IMF standby agreement, but in reality they can. U.S. Treasury is very powerful, and Turkey's problems with America are essentially problems that U.S. Treasury has with, various, with Turkish bank Halkbank and the government of Turkey. So given how powerful an actor U.S. Treasury is, I think talk of European bailout of Turkey, uh, both in terms of size and in terms of, you know, pushing ahead with something America is not necessarily on board for is not very easy. Not to mention the conditionality. As I mentioned, Tur Turkey is not necessarily seeing an economic bailout in terms of accepting conditionality at this point. Uh, one of the things that IMF has done back in 2001, when they actually did bail out Turkey with a standby agreement, was building institutions that are in the management of the economy, various institutions from the banking regulators to competition board to stock market, you name it, you know, uh, capital markets board, and of course the central bank. One of the things that happened over the past few years is is an erosion in terms of the independence of those institutions, autonomy of those institutions. Uh, you, need, you do need a very, you know, economists say what Turkey needs is a return to more orthodox policies and institution building. And there's absolutely no appetite for that at this point. So hence the big problem for Europe. I mean, it's not a matter of if who can find the resources uh, to bail Turkey out. It's a question of who can con convince Turkey or Turkish government to actually wear the kind of sort of tight jacket that it needs to wear uh, for a bailout. So um, maybe end with you, um, Almut. What, what do you think the, uh, the Germans are hoping for when Erdogan comes on the 24th of June? And how do you see the, the uh, European debate kind of developing further around these different options as we um, as the crisis hots up and, and European companies uh, banks in particular find themselves under more and more pressure I fully share Asler's assessment that it would be very difficult a very difficult uh, situation for the Europeans and uh, yet we would be at the receiving end of anything that turns sour uh, in Turkey so uh, in a way it's uh, yet again European uh, between a rock and a hard place um, probably so what the Germans are trying to do is to keep communication going um, at a very high level, um, including a state visit of President Erdogan that is currently being discussed um, that might happen uh, later uh, in a few weeks' time. So, uh, you know, to, to make sure that in this overall difficult and messy environment where a lot of things are shifting, the transatlantic um, shifts from a Berlin perspective are quite severe um, and it's interesting to see the foreign minister being quite articulate about um, the very fundamental shift that might push Europeans ultimately towards greater independence. Um, the chancellor has somewhat shot uh, that down. It was an opinion piece that the foreign minister um, published last week but um, by and large I think the chancellery and the foreign ministry agree that it is very important both with regards to Turkey but also with regard to developments in Russia to be among the countries and the capitals that keeps channels of communication open that also tries to handle at the same time the very difficult conversation with the United States which at the very top level of the president is one that is difficult but um, from an official perspective I think 
Um, Emily Haber, the German ambassador in, in Washington, um, uh, I think it, I can say is one of the most senior and experienced ones. I'm sure there will be a lot of um, engagement now, and I think that um, still works quite well. Um, at the same time, of course, um, keeping the European dimension going here, Germany's traditionally, and also on this one amongst the, the countries that will be at the core of any uh, solution, any contribution alongside with, with Paris. Um, and I'm also, as Oksana pointed out um, earlier, doubtful that there would be something like a solution within the sort of EU framework. Um, there needs to be more imaginative thinking right now, which is not what the Germans are necessarily used to um, and, and very good at. But I think they are, they are learning <laughs> to getting better at it because there are so many... Um, things that are happening right now that are less than ideal and the Germans are learning to uh, deal with less than ideal situations um, um, by coming up with sort of more flexible ways of handling. Um, but let me underline this. If, if things really deteriorate in Turkey, this will be no good news at all for Germany and for European Union member states. Maybe... Um... Aslo, just before we, we uh, bring the podcast to an end, have a kind of final word from you about what you think this means for Turkey's overall orientation. I and mean, we've spoken lots of times about the, the end of Turkey's Western orientation, um, you know, the kind of growing problems which Turkey has had with the US, with different European countries, not least with Germany. Um, this is a complicated thing because in some ways the problems with the US create seem to be creating a, a, an interest in having a, a more normal relationship um, with Europeans. Um, and it might even mean that, that uh, Turkey is forced to give up on some of uh, the most problematic uh, things which um, have been challenging NATO, such as buying um, the, uh, the S-400 from Russia. Um, what, what do you feel at the moment the implications will be for, for where Turkey ultimately ends up? Look, I think there's a great desire for the moment on the part of Turkey to get close to Europe, establish some type of an axis in which Turkey and Europe are together count, acting as a counterweight to U.S. position and whatnot, but this is, I think, very short-term and sort of ad hoc, and it could be we could be talking about an entirely different policy or scene a year from now. Uh, there is a, German statements of support for Turkish economy have been really music to uh, the government's ears. They're very appreciative of that. Having said that, this is all talk at this moment, and I don't yet see this evolving into a real rapprochement or resuscitation of Turkey's European adventure. Quite the opposite. I think uh, uh, Emmanuel Macron uh, a few days ago talked about a strategic relationship with Turkey, a strategic alliance, and Turks really did not like it at all. In fact, Turkish foreign minister issued a statement saying, you know, we are uh, on course for membership. Uh, we're in accession talks with the EU. But to me, this crisis is very much uh, going in the direction that Macron is talking about, which is that Turkey is effectively forming a very special relationship with Europe that can more be described as a strategic relationship or a privileged partnership or second tier, whatever you name it. But it isn't necessarily... Uh, moving in the European course. There is a tendency on both sides, both in Turkey and in Europe, to sort of decouple polit politics from the economic sphere, to sort of no expectations of, of uh, progress on, uh, on the democratic front. I think people have given up. So um, in some sense, it's, it's, it's sort of, a, it, in a Trumpian world, it's a very ad hoc uh, tactical uh, relationship building exercise. And a year from now, we could be talking about something else. The fact is that Turkey's drift away from Europe, is uh, away from the West, is a reality. And um, unless people here in Turkey sit and decide to really embark on reforms, to really change what's happening internally, and to really give it a go, reboot relations with the West, uh, that 
course will continue in my view okay well um i'm sure that we will uh come back to that topic many many times over the next months and years ahead um and uh we'll also see what happens uh on the this financial uh front as the germans and and um <clears throat> turks prepare for their bilateral visits and as the the kind of international discussions about the the future of the turkish economy gather further pace but in the meantime we have one thing left to do on this podcast which is our bookshelf segment um Asa, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Okay, uh, an important article. First, I'd like to start out with an article by Darona Cemoğlu, uh, who's an MIT professor of econo- economics, but also the author of Why Nation- Nations Fail, The Origins of Power, Prosperity and Poverty. His Bloomberg opinion piece uh, from today or yesterday on the Turkish economy is a very classic case of, you know, sort of democratic backsliding resulting in uh, in, in economic problems for an emerging market. It's, it's really, uh, he explains it beautifully, also talking about how the growth of institutions and strengthening of institutions had led to a period a decade ago of, you know, sort of 7% growth. And now the reversal of that is, of course, resulting in the, the kind of sort of uh, hemorrhaging that we're seeing today. So first, I'd like to recommend that article by Daron Acemoğlu. Secondly, Notes on a Foreign Country, an American Abroad in a Post-American World by Susie Hansen is a wonderful book, really easy to read. It's about Turkey, AKP period, travels abroad, also with a bit of an autobiographical perspective from a journalist who works for the New York Times magazine, among other places, but really nice and interesting insights into um, the AKP world, the, the sort of the people who support Erdogan, why they support him, and uh, and the different, different segments of Turkish society. It, it, you know, it's stuff I know, but it's still a very pleasant read with a beautiful photo on the cover of a mosque with two minarets and a sign in English that says, welcome. This is from the visit of USS Missouri back in the 40s, it should be, I think, to Istanbul when the mosques had signs in English uh, that said, welcome. And it, it just, I, uh, first I thought this was a Photoshop, but it turns out, I asked the author, and it turns out this was for real. So it just, you know, was a different world, I guess. Fantastic. What about you, Oksana? I'm afraid that my, my my reading list doesn't include very much on Turkey or or um, over the last few months. I mean, I've been reading really over the last uh, uh, several months a very interesting book by Yuri Sloskin, who is the uh, professor at Berkeley, uh, a history professor, who is he's uh, written an incredible book which is called The House of Government: A Story of the Russian Revolution. And of course, it's been the hundredth uh, anniversary of the Russian Revolution, and he really describes. It's a massive book, over a thousand pages, but it, it has an incredible uh, story of uh, how the revolutionary ideals and ideas have then been um, influencing several generations of uh, uh, people who lived in this particular house, you know, the house uh, of, on the embankment where eventually uh, a lot of members of this revolutionary elite has been um, uh, uh, killed in, in Stalinist repressions. And it follows the several generations. And it's really is a great read, which, uh, which, which tells the story of how the history is really oftentimes not being driven by ideals or, or, or great uh, decision makers, but by really by the realities, uh, uh, you know, by, by accidents and, and, and whole, whole families, you know, really evolving from the time of the revolution all the way to uh, the, 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 the recent days. So it's, it's, it's really a fantastic read. If you want to know um, uh, a lot uh, about what happened in Russia in the 20th century, I would recommend this book very strongly. Great. And what about you, Alma? Uh, on my shelf is just uh, East West Street on the Origins of Genocide and Crimes Against Humanity by Philipp Sanz, which has just been published into German, in German. And um, him being an international lawyer by training, setting off 
uh, to yeah, understand the roots of his, the difficult roots of his family who um, lived in in Ukraine. In and the German title of the book is Rückkehr nach Lemberg, so return to Lemberg, to um, Ukraine, where his his family lived. And uh, um, apart from grandparents, were victims to the. Shoah, um, and he is intertwining that with the story, the history of the two um, key people that came up with, um, you know, the, the legal pattern of genocide um, as well as crimes against humanity that then after World War II played such an important role in the Nuremberg trials. And um, the way he, he talks about it, and I'm sure um, the English-speaking listening community, Mark, to your podcast, has already read that splendid book. But even in the German uh, translation, this book is just such an impressive um story about the history of, of Europe and in places where, um, you know, the, in, in, in these atrocities, there are human stories and stories of two people escaping. And I should have said that, um, of course, um, uh, Raphael Lemkin and, and his colleague, who then were so influential in shaping, you know, the, the legal framework of genocide and crimes against humanity, were also from, from Lemberg. And they might have met his, his grandfather, who wasn't an international lawyer, but in Anyway, he tells the story, really, of, of people who, in this very difficult environment, managed to get out, and um, and and had a very big impact on our thinking uh, today, how to deal with genocide and crimes against humanity. And um, I'm halfway through, and I'm going to pick it up again tonight. Great, fantastic. So I uh, was going to talk about a book, but I was really taken by a podcast I was listening to this morning. This is one for German listeners. The Spiegel Online has got a very good political podcast called Stimmenfang. And this morning's one was about the far-right demonstrations in Chemnitz in, in uh, Saxony, uh, in East Germany. And they spoke to uh, a journalist called Janko Tietz, who uh, comes from Saxon. And uh, it's a fascinating insight into some of the... Uh, the roots of these violent far-right protests which have been going on. And he draws this fascinating um, <clears throat> uh, red thread from the demonstrations of 1989 when these people thought that they were overthrowing a, a, a system which they didn't like anymore to the way that they're thinking about their protests now and uh, feel that they're taking on another unaccountable elite that is changing the, the, the nature of Germany against their wills. And it's anyway, it's a very interesting discussion. Um, and uh, we'll put a link to that, as indeed we will to the books which my colleagues mentioned earlier. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do make sure that you let other people know about it, either by tweeting about it or writing about it on your Facebook page or ours, but above all, by heading to um, iTunes and leaving us a rating and review uh, on, their, uh, on their page, because I think it will have a, uh, a very positive sign uh, drawing other people to the podcast and spreading the word about it. Um, we're also very interested to hear your recommendations for the bookshelf segment. So please write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu if you have any recommendations that you'd like us to share with other listeners or if you have suggestions or feedback on our episodes so far. But in the meantime, from Asla Aiden Tashbash, Oksana Antonenko, Almut Muller and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Harkenbrage and our editor is Katharina Botel-Atinaro. Mm-hmm.